chapter 11, verse 33, through chapter 12, verse 2. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Good afternoon again. Um, let me pray for us uh, before we get started. God, we thank you so much for uh, this passage of Scripture in Romans 11 and 12. And um, we are just looking forward to um, this, this moment we get to share where we're walking through your word and, and just all of us together learning from you, God, and um, being fed spiritually. Um, that we might find ourselves more satisfied in you, that we might find ourselves um, just more trusting of you, uh, that we might find uh, ourselves just more satisfied in, in the soul level because of who you are and because of what you've done. Uh, we pray for all of our friends and other members of King's Cross who are either still sick with COVID um, or uh, have been exposed, and uh, we just pray, God, that you would protect our church family. Please uh, spare us from pain and discomfort and sickness, um, and uh, we just look forward, God, uh, to the day where um, all of this is behind us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So uh, it's good to be with you. Uh, if you missed last week, <clears throat> you know uh, that um, we, we, we kind of mentioned like how, how, how every week in, or every year rather in January, we try and uh, spend a few moments uh, to do something a little bit different. Although last week, um, did I say something wrong? Oh, okay, sorry. I saw my wife like laughing hysterically and usually uh, that's... That's when I said something wrong. So anyways, um, like, uh, so, so, you know, obviously like last week, uh, there were even uh, many more people out. Um, you know, I think I made the quip earlier that I think like a lot of you guys like were out in quarantine last week, right? And so we're glad that you guys survived, that everyone's back here. Uh, but um, typically what we do is spend a few weeks in January to do something a little bit different than our normal flow and rhythm. We, we kind of visit, revisit our vision as a church. We go through, like our normal flow and rhythm is we go through books of the Bible verse by verse, but, but now is a moment, at the beginning of the year, we take a moment to revisit our vision. We sort of pump the brakes, check under the hood to make sure we've got everything in the right place, reset our GPS, make sure that we're heading in the right direction. And, and this year, uh, for the next few weeks before we head back into our series in Revelation, I want us to look at three different priorities. Three different priorities that we want to have as a church. Three priorities for healthy Christians. Like if we want to be healthy in our faith, what should our three priorities that we want to establish at the beginning of the year be? And if we want to be a healthy church, 
we obviously need to be comprised of healthy Christians. And so what are these three priorities for healthy Christians and for healthy churches? This afternoon, we're going to look at the first priority, which is the priority of worship. We want to be a people that's marked by worship. We're going to look at three points. First, how we are all wired for worship. Uh, Secondly, why God himself is worthy of all worship. And lastly, we're just going to talk practically. What does this mean for us? All right. So I'm going to get through these quickly. Point number one, we are all wired for worship. We're all wired for worship. Turn to Romans chapter one, if you have your Bible. Romans chapter 1, we'll go there in a little bit, but first I want to define the terms. What, is, what are we talking about when we use the word worship? What is worship? Here's our working definition for what we're talking about when we, when we say worship. Worship is seeing uh, that what God is worth and then giving him what he's worth by the Spirit and according to truth. So that's what we're talking about when we talk about worship. It's seeing what God is worth, that he is beyond description in terms of his worth. And then we give him what he's worth out of our lives by the spirit and according to truth. Now that word worship actually comes from an old English word meaning uh, worth-ship. Worth-ship. And so um, really it has two parts to it where we see what God is worth, and then we give him what he's worth. At the center of that, at the center of ascribing to God what he's worth is just really placing our joy in him, finding satisfaction in him. I mean, man, that's when you know that your, your engagement with Christian spirituality, the difference between just mere religion or real life-giving religion where it's a relationship where you are enjoying him. The difference between those two is on the one hand, we talked about this a little bit last week, is where you treat your spirituality as almost like chores to complete, right? Like I go to church because I have to, like I pray because I have to, like I'm, this is what, this is what good Christians do. Where on the other hand, true spirituality, the way that you know if you have a real relationship with Jesus, as opposed to the one that he warns us of in the Gospels. The way that you know you have a real relationship with him is like you, you start to find satisfaction in him, where you truly enjoy him. You want to be with him. You want to be with his people. And things like praying and the scriptures and fasting and being with other believers and going to church don't no longer look to us as chores, but as Delights. It's no longer duty, but delight. Here's what Job says. Job in chapter uh, 23, verse 12 of the book of Job, he says, I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. He's speaking of the Lord there. And he says, I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food. Job says, I have treasured, I have delighted, I find satisfaction in the words of the Lord more than what I need to eat for the day. See, when we treasure something, that means that we we look at it with longing, with desire. 
And that's how Job looked at the words of the Lord, and that's how we should look at the Lord himself. Um, <clears throat> flipping through this catalog the other day, and um, I saw this, this awesome, like, like oak, I think it was oak, like wood, like heavy kind of wood, right? A coffee table, uh, but it was like a coffee table slash cigar humidor, right? And so it's like you had this, <laughs> my wife's shaking his head, her head. Uh, so uh, the top, the top of, of the coffee table is like this giant glass panel where you could like look inside and you've got like, you've got like six drawers that come in from the outside and it's lined with Spanish cedar so it keeps, you know, your cigars at the right humidity. And um, I mean, the thing's just pricey, but it's beautiful, right? Uh, and I think about, if you look at it and I'm thinking about like, man, that'd be so so cool to own something like that, right? And when you treasure something, you think about how great it would be to have it. You would ponder its qualities. You think about like its, its weight, the finish, like all the different drawers, right? Then you start telling people, telling your friends like how cool it is, like I'm doing with you right now. Uh, and then if I had the money, you know, like I'd, I'd buy it, right? Like I'd, I'd purchase it. You see, worship, it's a little bit like that. Worship is where we're treasuring God, where we are pondering his worth, his qualities, his characteristics, the things that we love about him, the things that we just want to be closer to him uh, about. And then, and then when, after pondering his worth, we then, we then do something. We, we, we give him what he's worth. We give him what he's worth. That's what worship is. It's those two things. And look, in some sense, we can say even atheists worship. Now, they don't worship God, but every single one of us, regardless of your faith tradition or background or creed, every single one of us ascribes worth to people and things all the time. You might do it to a person, a significant other, you might do it to like your most prized possession, your favorite hobby, your favorite sport. We ascribe worth to people and to things all the time by the way that we're willing to choose to give time, give resources, give attention, ascribe worth. Ultimately, worship is when we make much of something so much to the point that we begin to find our own sense of worth in that thing or person and are willing to make sacrifices for it. And that's because we're created by God for worship. We're hardwired by our creator for it. That's why we see things like grown men and women who, who, don't, even, who don't even believe in God or enjoy worshiping their creator. Uh, they can, in some contexts, be seen in this position of exuberant worship, right? where they're at a game with their bodies painted and their faces painted, spending emotional energy for hours on end. It's because we're wired for worship. It's just what we do. You see, when God made humans, he wired us to honor and worship him with every moment of our lives, which on the one hand, that's his prerogative as God. But on the other hand, it just seems natural that that would be the case. Because on the other hand, we are made in his image, right? We're made in his image and likeness. 
We're made with human dignity. And that means that we are at our best as humans when we are worshiping the one true God in whose image we're made. And we're also at our worst when we're worshiping anything or anyone else. You see, the first humans that God created in the garden, their lives were started off as just this natural outpouring of worship to the God who made us and to the God who just walks among us. But when sin entered the world, it didn't eliminate our ability to worship. What it did is it, is it redirected it. And so now instead of worshiping the creator, our problem is that we worship created things. We worship lesser things. We worship things that don't make us whole, that can't give us everlasting joy in life. Here's how the Apostle Paul describes it in Romans 1. He says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Verse 25, he says, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. You see, simply put, in our sin and in our rebellion, our hearts and our minds, we prefer creation over the creator. You see, some of the false gods that we worship which is what the Bible calls idols, right? Some of our false gods and our idols are made out of wood, like in Isaiah, or gold, like we read about in Exodus. But, but sometimes they're made of bank accounts. Sometimes they're made up of our social influence. Sometimes they're mirrors. Wherever it is in any given moment, that, that we find ourselves finding our sense of, of value, identity, worth, being. Whatever it is, in any given moment, that you're finding your sense of value in something else, that, that thing is what you are worshiping. Now, sometimes when we, when we hear the word worship, like, what comes to mind? Like, we... When we hear worship, we, we, we sometimes think first of like music, right? Oh yeah, that's what, when I, when I say I'm worshiping right now, like I'm, I'm thinking like, oh, I'm, I've got a song in my head. I've got a song in my heart, right? Now that, that's, that's part of what it means to worship. That's a form of worship. Ultimately, worship is just a posture of your heart. It's a bowing down of your heart before the God who's worth it. Carol Best articulated it this way. He says, at this very moment, and for as long as this world endures, everybody inhabiting it is bowing down and serving something or someone. It could be an artifact, a person, an institution, an idea, a spirit, or it could be God through Jesus Christ. And so, kind of a heart 
level check that I want us to ask right now in this room or um, for those streaming in is what would you say is the posture of your heart right now? What about you? What is your heart bowing down to and serving? Is it Christ? Is it the creator? Or is it something or someone else? You see, even Christians, we can find ourselves at times engaging in false worship. I regularly find that in my own heart where I'm engaged in false worship because even Christians can have their idols. Some ways to determine what our idols might be is you maybe ask yourself questions like, like what do I give or what do you give your, yourself to that you'd be willing to sacrifice anything for it, even your faith, even your church community. Where do you, where do you feel that, that, that pull, that tem- temptation? Where is it that you run to for comfort? Is it a food, a drink, a thing, or a habit? What are the emotions that sort of overpower you that, that you know are displeasing to the Lord, but you just say, but, I mean, but that's just the way I am. That's just the way that I was raised. And you find yourself like, like rationalizing, making excuses for yourself. You see, how you, how you answer those questions will reveal what you truly worship. And a lot of times, the most aggressively defensive that we get when, when we're being pressed on these is typically like an indicator that there's, there's an idol that we're hanging on to, that the Lord, for our good, just wants to rip out of our hands. You see, that's why Jesus came. He came to transform us from false worshipers to true worshipers. He's the one who reorients our hearts so that those lesser things no longer become ultimate things for us, leaving us dissatisfied in the end. He came so that through the gospel, we will begin to see God, our maker, as true, so that we'll see him as good, so that we'll see him as beautiful and satisfying. You see, we're all wired to worship. The question is just, where is it that your heart is bowing down to right now? So it leads us to our second point. where We want to look how God alone is worthy of all worship. God alone is worthy of all worship. Look at our definition of worship again. It's seeing what God is worth and then giving him what he's worth by the spirit and according to truth. You see, it's important for us to look at the scriptures and see what they say about God. Otherwise, the God that we worship could just be this idea of God that we've just fabricated ourselves. Sometimes we end up, we, we, sometimes we, the, like, we, we engage in worship for God because of the emotional feels that it gives to us, the sensationalism that we feel. Now, look, there's nothing wrong with feeling all the feels, right? There's nothing wrong with engaging your heart and your emotions in worship. You absolutely should. 
But the reason why we engage our hearts and our minds in worship need to be based on how God actually is. It need to be based on what God actually calls us to. Not based on what we're ever feeling in our hearts in the moment. Not based on what the culture tells us to care about. You see, the question we're after today is how do we live a countercultural life of worship as disciples of Jesus in our current culture? Because our culture is constantly telling us, no, God's not number one, you're number one. Our culture is constantly telling us, like, no, you worship yourself. You go for the thing that makes you happy. You go for the thing that makes you comfortable. You go for the thing that you have time for. You don't sacrifice anything for anyone. You do you. Man, if we draw that out to its furthest conclusion, if we live that out in our faith life, you'll find yourself further and further and further and further away from God. See, the gospel of Jesus comes up against what the culture says in like, and says, no, there's something truer and better than that. There's something worth truly living for. The worth and glory of God our maker. You see, first, God is worthy of our worship simply because he's God. The Apostle Paul is going to help us see that uh, in Romans 11. This is the text we read earlier. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn forward now to Romans 11. And if you know anything about the, the, the uh, book of Romans, it's that the first 11 chapters, the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans is basically Paul expounding on all the intricacies of the gospel. He just talks about like how crazy it is that we were born as enemies of God, yet God chose to come after us. He chose to love us. He chose to save us. He goes on and on and on about the gospel and its implications, and, 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 and it's, uh, it, it's almost like his magnum opus on the gospel of God's grace. And so at the end of Romans 11, up until that point, Paul has just been going on and on, meditating on the gospel, meditating on who God is and all that he's done for us in Jesus. And at this point, at the end of chapter 11, you almost see him just like burst out in praise before he transitions in, in chapter 12. Look at verse 33 of Romans 11. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. You get the sense here that he's, this is just like a spontaneous burst right? He's totally just amazed at God, this God that he's been reflecting on in the previous chapters. And don't miss how that first word where he says, oh, the depths of the riches. Let's says, oh, and then there, you see how there's a comma there? Like, oh, comma, uh, in verse 33. This isn't like, oh, I forgot to tell you. It's not that kind of oh. This is this just happens to be the first word that explodes out of his mouth. Oh. He didn't look it up in a thesaurus. He wasn't trying to be super articulate. He just burst out in the word, oh. Because his soul 
is just overwhelmed. His heart is stirred. He's amazed and in awe at this God that he's been talking about for the previous 11 chapters. And so he says, oh, the depth. Oh, how deep are the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. In other words, he's saying the riches, wisdom, and knowledge of God are immeasurable. You can't find the bottom. You can't plunge the depths. It's so deep, you can't even, you can't even see where it ends. Just a couple months ago, I was like reading this article about how um, like, like Elon Musk had far surpassed, like he, like the way, like the gap between him and Jeff Bezos as far as like the two richest men in the world was like never as wide as it had been at this certain point in, it was like the end of November, I think. Um, They're talking about how, you know, he's been the richest person in the world. He's probably going to be the richest person in the world for a while. His net worth was uh, $278 billion, which is a lot of money, right? And you just think about that, like, oh my gosh, like that's, that's, that's so much. And everyone's talking about like, how crazy is it that somebody has 278 billion, like, like that, that's his net worth. And just talking about like how big of a number that is and how, you know, we, we, haven't, we haven't seen that in like re- recent history. Um, and that is a big number, but it's still just a number. It's still quantifiable. 278 billion is not as big as 279 billion. It still has an end. Paul says, not the riches of God, not his wisdom, not his knowledge. They know no bounds. They're deeper than deep. They're steeper than steep. He says, oh, the depth. God's worth can't be counted is another way to say what he's saying. His worth can't be counted. His riches are more valuable and precious than even earthly riches. Than any stock option or savings pile, these are the riches of his kingdom, the riches of who he is, the worth of his character, his attributes, his glory, his majesty. And not only are the riches of his holiness deep, but his wisdom and knowledge too, he says. And then read on with the rest of verse 33. He says, how unsearchable are God's judgments and how inscrutable, which is an old word for mysterious and beyond comprehension. How inscrutable, how beyond comprehension are God's ways. Now, why does this verse matter? You see, it, it shows us that the primary reason God is worthy of worship, the primary reason our hearts should be bowed down, the primary reason that we should go, oh, is simply because of who God is. He's not like any person. He's not like any creature. He's not like any created thing. He, God is not worshipped by us because he needs it from us. He's not needy. He's worshipped by us because he is worthy of it. He's bigger than us. He's better than us. 
He's worthy in every way of all our worship. Verse 36 of Romans 11 says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Every person, every creature, everything that has ever existed exists to serve his glory. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. I think some of us, we find ourselves saying things like, man, like that, I know that and that makes sense, but, but maybe I'll make that be a part of my life later, you know? Like maybe that's not for right now, maybe that's, maybe that's, for, maybe that's for later, or maybe that's for when I have uh, more time, or um, maybe just not in this season of, of my life, but... But from him and through him and to him are all things. You see, there's going to come a time. Could be tomorrow. Could be tomorrow. It could be a week from now. Could be, could be at the end of your life. But there's going to become a time where you're going to see ultimate reality. You see, what we see and hear and experience is not ultimate reality. There's a greater reality happening behind the scenes. Like, that's what we, we've, we've seen again and again in our series of Revelation, right? And there'll come a time where we'll see that from him and through him and to him are all things. And if our hearts aren't postured towards that, Right now, what we're doing is living in denial to that. See, that everything exists to give him glory. That's why Paul's not composed, uh, and he just gives out this, this undignified, like, oh, the depths, because he's worth it. Not only is God worthy of our worship just because of who he is, but he's also worthy of our worship because of what he's done. Read the next verse with me in Romans 12, verse 1. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers... By the mercies of God, the mercies of God, again, is, is just in light of the gospel that, that he just went on and on about for the previous 11 chapters. And so, and so Paul is saying, look, I appeal to you, I urge you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, by the gospel, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. You see, if we want to be true worshipers, if we want to be counter-cultural worshipers, we need to realize that prior to God's mercy, prior to God's grace, prior to the point where we met Jesus, we were dead in our sins and trespasses. We walked in the ways of the world. We were indulging in self-worship. We were indulging in creature worship. We were rebelliously just finding our value and identity not in God, but in other things. We chased after our own pleasures until God in his mercy decided to save us, decided to snatch us from the darkness and brought us into his kingdom of life. And look, if we want, if we want to be marked by true and genuine worship, we need to understand how central celebrating the gospel is to our worship. 
John Calvin says it this way. He said, men will never worship God with a sincere heart or be roused to fear and obey him with sufficient zeal until they properly understand how much they are indebted to his mercy. You see, that's why we say that worship is giving glory to God for his worth in the name of Jesus. Because prior to God's mercy, we were objects of his wrath. Now, it's not unfair to say that we were objects of God's wrath. It's like, dude, why is God so angry? It's, not, it's actually good because we were sinners, right? We were his enemies. We are actually part of the problem as to why creation and, and the world and the universe is screwed up as the way it is. And so it's good for God to say, set his wrath against us. He could have left us there. He could have left us broken and fallen. But because he is infinite in character, because he's infinite in his goodness and mercy, because of the love with which he loved you as a sinner, even in your rebellion, he sent Jesus to die for you and to die for me. And through his resurrection, he raises up to walk in the newness of life. What is the only proper response to that? The only proper response to that is worship. Recognizing God's worth. Giving him the worth that he's due. So here now is where we want to talk about what this, this looks like. Point number three, what does this look like? I'm going to give you a few quick notes on these verses and then we'll close. All right? First, we worship him with, with, with our lives. Just simply worship him with your life. You see, if we're truly worshipers of God, then our lives will be marked by holiness. Our, mark, our lives will be marked by being set apart. It doesn't mean we'll be perfect. I'm not perfect. It doesn't mean we won't sin. I sin all the time. It doesn't mean we won't be tempted by sin. But it means that in the way that we treat our sin... In the way that we find worth in God through the gospel, we're set apart. We're different. That means we, even though we still sin, we hate that we still sin. And we want to stop. We want, we repent and we, we believe and we confess. We surround ourselves with Christian community, with like a, like a home group or, or accountability so that, that we have people that we can, can, can pray with, who can encourage us and, and preach the gospel of grace to us. You see, in, in, look at verse 1 again with me in Romans 12. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, which is what? Holy and acceptable to God which is your spiritual worship. And so what does it look like for Christians to worship? Part of what that looks like is living as a living sacrifice, being holy and acceptable to God. Now, what does it mean to be a living sacrifice? Paul, obviously, he's drawn from Old Testament imagery by using that word sacrifice. And when, when, when this is being said, uh, Paul knew that the Jews at the time, that they grew up offering sacrifices to God. But in the Old Testament, when you offered a sacrifice to God, that, that, that sacrifice was usually dead, right? It's a dead sacrifice. 
But for us, after we offer ourselves to God, we're alive. We're alive. You see, he's pointing to the fact that every single day we need to re-offer ourselves to God. How many of you, how many of you guys like find yourselves having to do that where you realize like, man, I feel like I need to like renew my faith every single day. Like I need to constantly, I need to remind myself of the gospel. I need to return to God's word. I need to return to Christian community. Like I need, I can't, I can't follow him the way that he, he's, he's worth following if I don't re-offer myself to him. So that's part of what it means to be a living sacrifice. You know, elsewhere in the New Testament, we're encouraged to remember our baptism. See, one of, one of the ways that God sets us apart is through the sign of baptism. Baptism is a way that you proclaim to the world, look, I'm dead to my old self, and I'm alive to my new self. I used to follow the world, but now I follow, follow the God who loves me, who saved me, who gave up everything for me. And so when we're told to remember our baptism, we're told to remember that we've died to our old ways. That's why we go under the water. You are buried with Christ in baptism, and you rise to walk in newness of life. And anytime I feel myself um, like feeling just depressed or anxious or um, discouraged in my fight against sin, like one of the things that I do is I remember my baptism. I remember the significance of what that meant to me at the time. I'm dead to my old self and that I've risen from the waters to walk in a new life. Preach the gospel to yourself. We're also called a living sacrifice because Jesus is the sacrifice who died in our place so that we might live. You see, I'll never understand how we could believe that God did what he did in the gospel but yet not, we, we have trouble trusting him with our lives. Like, I'll never understand how we could believe everything that God did for us in the gospel through Jesus, but yet not trust him with our lives. It's like, if he's trustworthy to take the penalty of sin on himself so that you experience full life and joy for eternity, how is he not trustworthy with the rest of your day today? How is he not trustworthy with your future? See, part of what it means to be a living sacrifice is that you, you, you get that, that God wants all of you. He wants your mind. He wants your heart. He wants your life. He wants the whole package. And you know how that happens? It happens not by trying really hard. It happens by the transforming grace of God in Jesus. You see, holiness in the Christian life isn't just having the willpower to do the right things. No, holiness is the overflow of worshiping God. Holy is the overflow of worshiping God, the God who has shown you mercy and grace, where you're so thankful, you're so appreciative, you're so moved by the gospel of grace that you can't help but respond with your life. 
Number two of what this looks like is we worship him counterculturally. We worship him counterculturally. Read verse two. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. The key word here is transformed. It's the Greek word metamorpho. It's where we get the word metamorphosis from. And so to be transformed is like this changing from the inside out. It's a completely being made new, like in the same way that a caterpillar transforms into or metamorphizes. Is that metamorphs? Um, it's morphing time, right? Like, it like morphs into a butterfly, right? Just completely changes. This is different. Metamorphosis, that kind of changes. That's different than religious change, all right? Religious change is just outward only. Behavior modification. That's like a caterpillar trying to flap its wings before it becomes a butterfly, right? Eventually, you're just going to find yourself tired and completely burned out. But gospel change, real change, real spiritual change happens when you're renewing your mind in God's grace, as verse 2 says. This is why that we say here, one of our core distinctives as a church is that we say that the gospel is not just for unbelievers. The gospel's for believers, too. Christians need the gospel as much as unbelievers do. Because as we renew our minds with the mercies of God's grace, we're transformed into the kind of people who love and obey God from the heart, who genuinely love him, who genuinely want to obey him. See, we need a, a new way of thinking. That's why he talks about a renewal of the mind. Sometimes we think that God wants us to clean ourselves up before we come to him. But God isn't looking for people with a clean record. No, the Bible says that he is near to the brokenhearted, that he's close to the crushed in spirit. He doesn't want people who think they're good enough to come to church, think they're good enough to worship him. No, he wants worship, worshipers that are tore up over their sin who own their need for mercy. He wants people to come to him and say, God, I'm a mess. I don't know what I'm doing. I keep messing up. I, I, don't, really, I, can't, I'm admit, I don't even want to worship you as much as I know that I should. We own our sin. We own our need for mercy. And we come to him just as we are thankful for the grace that he offers us. You see, this is why worship matters, worship in Jesus that's informed by the truth, is because the most practical thing that we can do as worshipers is remind ourselves of how big God is and how small we are. To see the bigness of God, the worthiness of his nature, to see him worthy of worship, to see that he, his, his worth is, that, that God himself is worth being made much of. And that the God who is worth being made much of, he makes much of you. The infinite God who is worth being made much of, he makes much of you, even in your sin. See, that gospel will transform you. That gospel will melt your heart. To know that the God who is deep in riches and wisdom and knowledge and love and mercy can be personally known by you, 
because of Jesus? When you get that, you start to worship him counterculturally. Number three, we worship him with others. Worship him with others. While worship can take an individualistic form, right? Like when you're by yourself, when you're reading your Bible, when, you, when, you, when you're saying like, uh, when, when you're, you find your heart disturbed by what you're reading or you're listening to, to hymns or worship music, like there's certainly an individualistic form that worship can take, but the corporate aspect of worship, and when I say corporate, I don't mean like businessy. I mean like corporate, like meaning together, right? Like the word corporal means body, like together as a body, which is biblical in a biblical illustration. So while worship can take an individualistic form, the corporate aspect of worship by far dominates the pages of Scripture in the Bible, especially in the New Testament. You see, the fact that we are called as worshipers to be one body together, it reflects the beauty of the new covenant. That Jesus... He's called the head of the body. The head of the body and his body is the church. And God intends to have a treasured people for himself. See, when we worship together, when we worship together as a church on the Lord's Day, on Sundays, like the corporate nature of worship, that's when it hits its peak. Because every member is performing a different function with our voices and the way that we serve and in my preaching and in your receiving and then coming up to receive communion. Like, like we, corporate worship uh, hits its peak when we're, when we're gathered together like this. Some theologians have said that, that the corporate worship of God's people is like the closest we'll ever get to what it's like in heaven on this side of death. And it's not in any way to diminish how meaningful your quiet time can be or when you're listening to like your favorite Christian podcast or anything, but there's something magical that happens when God's people gather on the Lord's day. That's why he says in Hebrews, like don't neglect gathering together just like some are in the habit of doing. Tim Keller says that corporate worship happens when different individuals are worshiping God together in a harness, almost like a team of horses that are harnessed together where you're, you're moving forward in step. That's what it, mean, that's what it is when, when, when we worship together. See, you guys aren't just like consumers sitting in chairs receiving a good in service. Like, no, we are, if you are a follower of Jesus this afternoon, when we are worshiping together, we are in step with one another. Worshiping together, together we're reminded not to trust in our own abilities like we did this last week. Together we're putting our affections away from, we're pulling our affections away from created things and we're, we're placing our trust in God. Together we're engaging our minds, our wills, our emotions together as we, as we gather and sing and learn and receive communion. What we're doing right now is not an option for Christians in the New Testament. One of the ways that we obey the fourth commandment to honor the Sabbath, to keep it holy under the new covenant is by gathering with believers on the Lord's day and worshiping God together. 
I mean, you ever look at any of the other Ten Commandments? Like, don't steal, uh, don't, don't covet your neighbor's goods, or, or, or commit adultery, or, or don't, don't bear false witness, don't worship idols. Do you ever see those as, 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 as optional? No, of course not, right? Like, they're, they're, they're kind of, like, written into the fabric of creation. They're, like, part of the big ten. That's why we call them the Ten Commandments. But for some reason, we, we, we treat the fourth commandment as optional. Look, one of the, and I, I, I want to be careful when I, when I talk like this, because the response, like the proper response isn't for any of us to feel like guilt or shame or like we don't measure up. That's not the proper response to God's word. But I, because every time that you come to him, there's mercy and grace. But one of the most countercultural things that we can do as Christians is to say, hey, look, because Jesus lived, died, and rose for me, I'm going to set aside time to commemorate that. Because he lived, died, and because he rose on a Sunday, signifying the, diff, the, 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 the significance of his victory over evil, sin, and death, I'm going to get to set aside a time on that day, on the Lord's Day, to celebrate the power of the gospel for stupid sinners like me with other fellow sinners. I'm going to do that with the church family. And so we come together each week and we gather for worship not, because of the, not just because of the greatness of God's majesty, but also because of the greatness of his love for us in Jesus, which is wildly undeserved, yet lavishly given. And lastly, we don't just worship him with others, but we worship him for others. We don't just worship at church, but we also worship at work and at home and on the block, because worship is simply making much of the one who's worthy. Not because we have to, but because we, we get to. And look, when we worship God, when we prioritize him, when we set aside time for him, when we make much of him, the people around us, they start to notice. They start to notice. And the Bible says that through our example, through our witness, one of two things will happen. They'll either find themselves convicted and like run away from God, or they'll find themselves convicted and run to him. Look, we worship God for others because when we worship genuinely, when we worship authentically, and when that's observed by others, how we live differently, how we even eat and drink differently, how we spend our money differently, how we spend our time differently, they see that we are bowing down to him with all that we are. That's what God wants. He wants you. He wants you in worship. He's saying, look, I want to display my glory through your life so that through your life of worship, the name of Jesus would spread and be praised throughout neighborhoods and throughout generations throughout the world. 
he's saying, it's like God is saying to us, yes, sing those songs. Yes, gather for worship. But more than anything, I just want your life. I love you. I chose you. I'm pursuing you. I redeemed you by the blood of Jesus, and I'm setting you apart so that your life can point people to me, so that your life can be a living sacrifice that is pleasing to me. There is the one who gave up his life, the one who's not a living sacrifice, but he was a dead sacrifice so that we might live through him. Jesus lived the perfect life. He lived perfectly only so that he could possess the value and worth that would pay for our sins on the cross. He lived life so that we, he lived the life that we could never live and died the death that we deserve to die and rose from the grave so that through repentance and faith, we could find fullness of life. Is that how you describe your life? Fullness of life, fullness of joy? Is that how you would describe your life as a living sacrifice to the God who is worthy of all worship? If not, then maybe with me, we can just say like, hey, may may this year, may 2022 be the year that that this rings true for, for me, that this rings true for our church. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.